Hello, and welcome to Bergcast, the podcast where we explore the work and legacy of writer Nigel Neal in film, television, and other media. In this episode, the voices of John and myself are joined by the mellifluous tones of horror expert and Egyptologist John J. Johnston to discuss the 1957 Hammer version of The Abominable Snowmen, originally scripted by Neil. In a discussion ornamented by a wealth of conversational curlicues, the three of us examine the history of hairy ape men in genre cinema, the early highlights of the career of Peter Cushing, whether the Yeti could be said to be working from the same playbook as Willy Wonka, Nazi practical jokes, and that exact period when Hammer transitioned from adapting television and radio properties into becoming the beloved purveyor of technicolour dread that we know and love. This is Birdcast, episode 25, The Abominable Snowman, with John J. Johnston. So, John, welcome to Birdcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. As we normally do with these with these things, we always start with uh, the personal confessions of how one first discovered Nigel. Many people say they came to him through the gateway drug, his Doctor Who, but there have been there, there, there have been a few others. So, how did you discover? Nigel? I suppose it was through Doctor Who in many respects, but directly it was a screening on the 29th of July, 1972. Wow. Okay. Late, very late at night on BBC Two of The Abominable Snowman. That was your first experience? That was my first experience. I'd heard my parents speak about Quatermass. I knew that Quatermass was, in many respects, a precursor of Doctor Who, um, but had never encountered Quatermass. And it, it wouldn't be until 1975 that I would see Quatermass 2 on television for the first time. So we're about to talk about... The Nigel Neal story that is your formative memory. It is, in many respects, the er text, yes. Wonderful. Dear listener, this is all planned. (laughs) Can you remember anything about watching that, or is it simply that uh, it pulled it? I remember being absolutely thrilled by it. It was also my first Hammer film. Wow. So there were lots of firsts coalescing in that one 90-minute screening. I knew of Peter Cushing already, and I already had a great fondness for Cushing as an actor. I think I must have seen one of the Dalek films by that point. But the film itself had had such an incredible, and I still find it to this day, an incredible atmosphere. Arnold Marley is distinctly unsettling. Even though he's not expected to do a very great deal, he brings it with all guns blazing to the screen. And it's a very, very unsettling, but particularly if you're watching it as a seven-year-old. And I still have very, very strong memories of the eventual reveal of the Yeti's face. Mm. Although it was supposed to show great wisdom and great kindness, it was still absolutely terrifying. I suspect what it was meant to show in Neil's script and what Hammer decided they wanted to affect at the end might not always have been the same. I think from from having done a fair bit of research, both recently for this 
and over the years, I think there is an interesting dichotomy of the fact that they they want to show great wisdom, great kindness, but they also want to show great otherness. And Valgest says there was many years ago, there was an Anchor Bay release of mm-hmm. The Abominable Snowman on DVD. And there's an interesting commentary. It seems to be cobbled together from various sources um, from both Neil and Val Guest. And Guest says that he has chosen the actor Fred Johnson to play the Yeti because he has those eyes, those eyes that look as if they've seen the world. And of course, Fred Johnson goes on to appear in uh, The Brides of Dracula as the priest, mm-hmm. and also his appearances clearly sufficiently startling. Fred Johnson crops up in a number of scenes as Susan Strasberg's dead father in Scream of Fear. And he has very startling looks. I mean, he's looking directly into the camera as a corpse. So I think Hammer knew that they were touching an otherness by using this actor. Uh, But it's still a tremendous piece of makeup and general approach. Uh, Nigel Neal says in the commentary, that he didn't think that the BBC got it quite right. The actual appearance of the Yeti. Well, the whole production and balance, unusually for Nigel Neal, he says Hammer probably got it the best that anyone could. And this is him, I think, talking in probably about 92, 93. Um, And he was saying what it really needs is someone like a Spielberg who can bring all of the special effects and everything to it. And he was particularly disappointed that there wasn't a full-on Yeti shown. um, Because apparently in the creature, the Yeti was shown regularly. Um, Mm. Both the dead Yeti and the Yeti that approaches Kuching at the end. It's very interesting that the scene um, where... Uh, the Yeti is shot, is the Yeti is not seen in the Hammer film. And Hammer seems to have form for that with Nigel Neal, whereas usually gore or spectacle is, is Hammer's stock in frame. Absolutely. Valguest was very keen that it shouldn't be seen, and apparently a Yeti was created, a dead mm. Yeti was created. Um, Neil, uh, sorry, Valguest refused to even view the prop. And said that he would only ever use bits of it at a time. And, and actually all that we ever see is, is an arm and a hand. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting that he wanted to take this. He clearly wanted to elevate it out of being a creature feature. Because, of course, and, and I know that we're probably going far, far away from the original question. Um, the, the, the mid-50s right. was, was a time of Yeti films. And, and they're all horrific. I've only ever seen bits of them, um, but I have some. That's in terrible. Oh, yes, yes, yes. As, as in almost unwatchable. So we have an American film called The Snow Creature from 1954. Then we have an Asian film called Monster Snowman in 1955. Oh, mate, it's Toho. Which, which gets reworked in 1957 and scenes with John Carradine flocked in so that it becomes a film called A Half Human. Oh, of course. And then another American film in 56 called Man Beast, directed by Jerry Warren. And, and you know, as you read these titles, your heart sinks ever deeper. And I think it was a very, very brave, interesting approach for Hammer to take, because whilst they could have gone down the exploitation route, they steered very clear of it. 
And the, the, po the poster doesn't steer clear of it. Nope. And well, clearly, yeah. by, clearly by creating the the dead Yeti, the intention was to go full guns blazing with monsters, but that's not the film that Val Guest produces for them. And yet it's what we're talking almost being made, if not, obviously not quite at the same time, because it's, uh, it, has, it has the same style, but within a month of Curse of Frankenstein, isn't it? That's right. Um, yeah. Curse of Frankenstein is in post-production, um, so they don't quite know what they have. Yeah, and so potentially if this was made even two years later, the, the focus may have been... I think it would have been a much more blood and thunder. Yeah. And, and Nigel Neal would have been extraordinarily unhappy with it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> we can all agree that actually not seeing the Yeti in any real substantive form really is a benefit to the film, isn't it? Definitely, it's, definitely. Yeah. The little, the little hints that we have are sufficiently unnerving, and the sounds that they make, the howls that you hear across yeah. Noscape, are very, very disturbing. Yeah, there's um, there's seemingly uh, a connection there or an influence there from Lovecraft to the Mountains of Madness. Yes. Um, and it's probably more prevalent in, in the TV version when, is it McNeen, is essential, and if not possessed, at least connected. And yeah, and he starts to speak in that language with lots of K's, which is very reminiscent of the noise that they hear that we've become the elder things. And yet, when the noise of the elder things is actually an homage in itself, right? Okay, to the cry of the subhuman natives in Antarctica in Edgar Allan Poe's story. The narrative of Arthur Gordon came with Nantucket. Ah, excellent. That's interesting. Now, um, which potentially, potentially fits what I said, because I know that uh, Neil denied any knowledge of uh, having read any Lovecraft mm -hmm. uh, when, when, when he was interviewed about it, and I have no reason to, 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 to suspect that. So perhaps, he, perhaps um, he's, he's coming in from an earlier source than. Uh, than well, yeah. I, mean, I think it's parallel, isn't it? It's a parallel thing. Um, I'm, parallel I'm, development. Parallel development. Yeah, parallel development. Um, <laughs> a, a, a common ancestor. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think it is a common ancestor. I think, um, for some reason, actually, weirdly, I'm reminded, and this is because it has been on my mind a lot recently in conversation, I'm reminded of the conversation I had with Ari Aster, the director of Midsummer, who, yeah, might drop, <laughs> who, um, who, who, who basically made a point of not watching Wicker Man or Blood on Saints or any folk horror movies and then made the most folk horror movie that ever folk horror the folk horror. And that's because he may not have watched those movies, but he was totally into all the movies that Robin Hardy and Peter Packard watched. Yes. And most. So, you know, they'd all watched the version of Spring, right? Yeah. What version. And they just came from the same place, wound up in the same place because they had the starting. And I think Neil, bringing it back to the Subject Neil um, didn't have to read Lovecraft because Lovecraft is so and Blackwood and Dunsany yes. and James and a lot of that classic 19th century British weird fiction. Yeah, we have an early 20th century British weird fiction, and that's all Lovecraft's favouritest thing. And so, uh, and Poe obviously not French, who was more popular in yeah. Europe. Um, 
you get much the same sort of thing happening. Yes. And, and Wells as well, because of course, Neil is a big Wells fan, you know, big, big fan of Wells, loved life, liked a bit of Wells, and, yeah. you know, you see it happening. So, and, and it's better because Neil is a much more humane and basically just better writer than Lovecraft, even though he's coming from the same direction. And obviously we're going to talk about Nazis later on, and Neil obviously had no time for Nazis as opposed to Lovecraft, who did actually quite like them. Um, so, you know, so that's, I think, what's happening there, really. In terms of context, now, we've... Um... We've talked a bit about uh, common ancestry of what Neil might have uh, been have been digging into when he when he created not just the creature or the, the, what we will term the the yeti as well, but in terms of Hammer, we're still at a stage where what they're they're buying. I mean, this is the what third Nigel Neil script. Then I'm guessing that isn't unique. Are we still in a stage where? Are we, sorry, are we seeing the end of the time when Hammer's wholesale buying material that's already been used in other media? We're reaching that point. But of course, the thing that they, for the company, the most important thing that they ever borrow from television is Peter Cushing. Because Peter Cushing had been winning awards for his television productions for the preceding six or seven years before they contact him about the curse of Frankenstein. And in fact, his agent is also contacting Hammer at the same moment. Um, so the idea of them originally doing productions based on radio plays and radio serials turns into them naturally doing productions based on television material. Um, and I think it's I think it's rather sad that when 1984 is eventually turned into a film. Mm -hmm. um, the rights don't go to Hammer because I would have been fascinated to see what Hammer would have done with a Nigel Neal scripted cinematic version of 1984. I think mm -hmm. it would have knocked the, um, the American version into hot air. Yes, I'm, I'm assuming that would have been directed by Val Guest as well. I would have thought so. Yes, yeah. he seemed to be their go-to man, um, which Val Guest seems to have been surprised about because he was chiefly known for comedy at that point. And would be again. And certainly would be again. Um, but Val Guest was interested in, in bringing a sort of cinema verite aspect to it. Um, and I think that's where he, that's where he got his enjoyment from doing these Nigel Neal scripts. And of course, he, he says in interviews and on the commentary that we've already discussed, um, that he never had any problems with Nigel Neal scripts, that they were always he picked them up and they were ready to film. That's not entirely true in this case. No, it really isn't. He seems to have done a fair bit of editing and reworking. And we have, we have the strangeness of the fact that we have these two additional characters who are created. Uh, we have Helen yes. Watson and we have Peter Fox. And they're both beautifully played. They're, mm. they're only small, but they're important. And there's there's some dispute as to where as to where Helen Rollison comes from. Uh, Nigel Neal seems to think it's Peter Cushing who says, "I want I want a woman's eye view on what's happening. I, I, there should be a woman in there." 
and she should be called Helen, taking his own wife's name. But when one looks, as I did many, many years ago, at the original script for The Creature, what we have is a scene where Rollison talks about when he was married and mentions that his wife's name was Helen. So, so the character already existed in some form in the original BBC television production, just not on screen. Yes, I think there's um, in the um, end of the film version where the only um, friend hears, uh, hears his colleague uh, and, and uh, Rollison hears nothing in the, in the creature, uh, he hears Helen um, calling for help. Right, right. Um, so, and he mentions her, he says, that, that's because, Helen. Because, it, because in the film, it's almost two separate attacks. Yeah, it's... It, it's honestly it, hears the radio. And friend doesn't. And yes. friend doesn't, and then... Friend and then friend hears... Um, calling. Yeah. And whereas, yeah, whereas in the creature, they both hear the radio, and then realise the radio yeah. is dead. And then they both hear the call. But they hear different people calling. Yes, and he calls and he calls to Helen, um, hearing hearing her. So yes, there's there's a. I wonder who I, I don't know. Perhaps uh, Toby Hader is is delving into this quite a slash Neil BBC BBC book. But I wonder if there was an earlier draft with Helen, and then they cut back. Possibly, well. yes, possibly. Not least of which because it was live telly. But but it's interesting just to see, it would be interesting to see how much of those additional characters come from Neil and how much come from Val Guest's little blue pencil. Um, I, I think there's possibly a lot there. Val Guest was terribly worried that it might be a very wordy script, I know. And that's one of the reasons that his camera is constantly moving. He's constantly trying to inject movement into what can in some cases be very verbose and yet the quality of that verbosity is um is is fantastic mm. um, the the discussions that take place of course it's it's all theorizing at, at the end of it we have to say well th this is what the yeti were but it's all theory and it's all theory in 90 percent of nigel neil's scripts uh, we are never told definitively this or, is or is not um, from that point of view, it's not Doctor Who. The Doctor theorises, but the Doctor is always right. Whereas, whereas Neil's heroes have theories that they just have to hope that they're right. Yeah, I mean, the best you hope for is that they're the best fit for what happens. Yes. yes. So you're, like dealing, in... you're dealing with the unknown, so it is a theory, but it's something that you can maybe get around, but the point is you never explained. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is which is far more terrifying. Oh, absolutely. Because when you have a hero who is as lost as the audience, then then that ups the stakes for the audience. Of course, but if, I mean, I think with his archetype, Quatermass, we, we often have a, a, a main character who is operating beyond the limits of their competence, yes. and beyond the limits of anyone's competence, because no one is and is simply doing the best they can. Yeah. Mm. Which, which in some cases can be, uh, can be, can fit into, into something like Doctor Who. But in Doctor Who, it's, death, it's assumed that the main character is more knowledgeable and can reach on more stuff than anyone else Absolutely. in the area. Whereas 
the Nigel Neal main character will always be more flawed. They may be more advanced, but they're still more advanced in a very limited field. What's what's very interesting, particularly when one thinks of something like Quatermass and the Pits, is that the very advanced, the very capable, the erudite Quatermass is still affected by the Martians. Mm. He is not entirely free, whereas Rony is. And one wouldn't perhaps expect that of the hero. And and watching, as I have been a, a couple of times, I think I said, um, watching the abominable snowman over the last few nights, one can see the three character types reasserted here. So we, we have friend who is instantly connected to the character of Bream. We have Roni, whose closest connection is probably McNee and or the Yeti themselves. Hmm. Okay. And then we have Rollison, who is connected with Quatermass because they are essentially altruistic, they are doing the best, but they are still tainted by this scientific desire to know. So although they are good men, they're slightly flawed good men. Yes, that's a truly fantastic insight. And it's interesting. I w- Would you argue, actually, that the portrayal of Quatermass in the first two Quatermass films is so unpopular and perhaps unquatermassy because Brian Don Levy's Quatermass is not really fitting into that archetype. He's he's much closer to Breen and to Friend than he is yeah. to to Neil's flawed scientist. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's sort of he, he did remind me, actually, Friend in the um the Hammer movie The Bombable Snowman, he reminded me of Brian Don Levy's Quatermass. It's great. It's a it's a soft performance, but there are definite similarities. Yeah, well, it's, a happy, it's a happy medium to then basically have uh, a, a a transatlantic actor for the for the US market, but but retain uh, the the British um, hero character or the the intelligent you know, ranked directly against the the brash and irresponsible irresponsible American. Um, which they try to then make into the set one and the same with the crazy mass film. Well, that, what's, what's very interesting is, is when one sees Don Levy going up against David King Woods, crazy mm. mass experiment, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really work. No. It, it, it is, it is just this browbeating of a very angry man. Yeah. Um, who wants to get on with the business in hand, whereas, Forrest Tucker against Peter Cushing. Cushing can give as good as he gets. He's an entirely different personality type, but he is robust enough to be able to deal. Um, whereas, whereas both Briscoe and David King Wood lack that gumption to be able to respond properly. Yeah. Cushing is one of those rare actors in British jo- in genre films generally who has equal form in playing both goodies and baddies. Yes. Yes. I think, and he's he equally good at both. Yeah. I think, was it 57 he did Gaslight for the BBC? Right. Yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. That's about right. That was one of his last TV ones because it was, well, did you know, made it better because the Frankenstein of you, the rest of his career would look like. And of course, yeah. Gaslight is the, the villain is the most monstrous of creatures. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, a straight man. 
yes. Um, but yeah, and I mean, obviously, but but he's Van Helsing and Baron Frankenstein, yeah. sort of like alternately almost, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so he is. He is both sides of that coin. But I mean, that's that, I think that's probably more one for a, a hammer a hammer podcast. But it's interesting that the way that the hammer will focus on less um, a student, uh, again, like a alien character operating yeah. the absolute limits of science, and more just becoming. Uh, an evil character in their own right, um, actually vindictive and sadistic, as, as, as Hammer's Van Helsing will, 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 will make it. But in terms of uh, setting, we've talked about um, uh, subsequent or sorry, parallel uh, Yeti Yeti films. How yeah. much here, here is um, is Neil drawing on the pioneering spirit of exploration? Oh, certainly. I mean, he. He states specifically when he's asked about a Quatermass experiment that that he wants the finale to happen in Westminster Abbey because the great British public had been watching the Queen being crowned in West, Westminster Abbey so very recently. Mm-hmm. So he, he is very much about having fingers on pulses in the same way as with Quatermass in the pit. It's a direct reaction to the to the riots that are taking place in Notting Hill. So this is a direct reaction to the to the ridiculously expensive Daily Mail. Let's go and chase a mummy, a, a mummy, a yeti uh, through the Himalayas. And although there had been some interest in the idea of the yeti, so we have the Shipton photographs from 1951, mm-hmm. and then we have Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953, coinciding with that coronation, saying that they may have seen something. Um, Yes. What's actually very interesting is in the first volume of his memoirs, Tenzing Norgay says that his father said that he had seen a Yeti twice and that he believed in the Yeti. And in the revised edition of his memoirs, he sort of poo-poos the whole idea of the Yeti and draws from the earlier My Father Saw One Twice. What changed? Interesting. I think what may have changed was the whole Daily Mail, let's go and find one, the the, the whole commercialization. I uh, think he's, he's very interested. He'd rather say that he didn't see one when he did if it would quell such a dust. Yeah, I, I think I think that's the fact. Why why at this time? Why what's happening in the in the fifties? Is there now is there an interest in finding finding? Yeah, there seems to be an ongoing interest. From what I've been able to see, that the after the the Daily Mail expedition, um, a lot of the fifties are spent putting together another expedition. This time mounted by Edmund Hillary, and mm. called the Silver Hut expedition. And he goes off in 1960. So the the Yeti fascination goes on for quite a long time. Yes. I mean, right up into the 1970s and 80s. In fact, I mean, I, uh, I, I, my, my interest in offbeat stuff and, and, um, rubbish, fake archaeology, <laughs> pyramidiates and such, yes. if you will, um, comes from my dad's collection of great mysteries books. And of course, there are the mysterious monsters ones. There's the one with Yeti. I mean, as a kid, actually, this is the thing. Yetis and Bigfoots were a thing that I 
was more scared of in movies and books and things than anything else as a kid. They were like the fictional monster because they might be real. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'm never going to get a Yeti walk into my house or a Bigfoot. But nonetheless, it's, it's interesting that like the last actually decent film to cope, to, to approach um, the fabled man beast is a film from a few years ago called The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. Oh, um, I'm aware of it, but I've not seen it. It's oh. excellent because it, it's set in 1979, is the interesting thing. It's set in 1945 and 1979. Right. And... Um, so you have a man who secretly is the guy who killed Hitler and it made no difference because they just got themselves another Hitler, which right. is right. lovely. And then he's hired by a bunch of secret service guys to basically put Bigfoot down because Bigfoot is actually thick. Bigfoot is actually kind of um, a public health, a health yeah. issue with the wildlife in that area. And you're expecting to have something that is... It is framed like a 1970s pulp movie, yeah. but you, instead you have something that is very sad and very thoughtful mm. and very serious. It's a very serious movie. Um, it's it's basically a huge kind of kind of fake out on the viewer, which and it's inter- but it's interesting that when they make a Bigfoot movie, it has to be set in 1979. Yeah, yeah. You know, it can't be can't be set now. Right. No. no. And work a real feeling. Bigfoot movie has to be set in the seventies because that's really the last time when anybody cared. Yes, yes. Yeah. But is there is it the same thing? Is the US um, obsession with finding Bigfoot within its own wild uh, frontiers the same as European expeditions going into well, what is now disputed Tibetan, technically China, but you know, um, not. Um, to find something. I mean, that's, that's, it, that seems infinitely more imperialistic. Than yes, definitely, definitely. Well, I, mean, I don't I know. I mean, America, uh, the USA is imperialistic in its own land. You know, it's essentially an empire of its own country. I, I'm recently the, um, the best thing about the Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched documentary, the folk horror one, is where the guy says, well, you keep talking about ancient Indian burial grounds. Let me tell you, it's all an ancient Indian burial ground. Mm. Yes, yeah, everywhere is. Um, so yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's a side point. Um, Russia has one too. Yes, that's oh. right. That's right. Well, the the Alma, isn't it? Isn't yeah, that? that rings a bell. That rings yeah. a bell. Um, and they have expeditions looking for the Alma in but Russia. There is, there is also one way over in China. Yes, yes, I've heard of that which, too. Which they seem to run regular expeditions to try and. Uh, but, but the imperialism. But, but I think I, well, I was going to say, round about the period that we're talking, from the 50s through until the end of the 70s, my recollection, although I didn't live through the 50s, my recollection is is that the fascination was with the Yeti rather than with Bigfoot. Bigfoot yes. was also sort of also ran, whereas I think the situation has reversed now. Yes, especially since you don't hear from either of them. <laughs> Um, but, but, but going back to the John's point about imperialism, I mean, one thing I like about the expedition is in, in the film, The Abominable Snowman, is that it's in a context of imperialistic expeditions. You know, yes. the, the Lama speaks English because he's been to Darjeeling, I think, in the BBC script and everything. Um, but there's a sense that they're doing a thing. They, 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 they give back an object to the Lama. Yeah. And, it's specifically 
stolen from a German expedition. Yeah. Because yeah. the two competitors for the imperial interior of Tibet in the first half of the 20th century were, of course, Germany and Britain. Yes. The, the British mission to Tibet was run by a man called Hugh Richardson. Mm-hmm. And he he lived to a ripe old age. He lived to about the year 2000, I think. Right. Ooh. But he was he was the head of the British mission from about 1933 to 1950 and then became the basically Britain's foremost expert on Tibet for the rest right. of his life. So when we, so he started in 33 now, obviously. Or there, I think thereabouts, I could be wrong. No, no. So the only reason I, I bring that up is um, when Doctor Who wants to be Captain, this is possibly the first Nigel Neal story that really plunders um, in terms of Doctor Who's chronology. Yes. Quite a lot to Derek Sherwood, quite a mass wholesale. Yet. But yeah. you've got, it's set in, I think, for 1935. Yeah, so, they, yeah. so, they, so there were expeditions also happening. I'm now talking about the, presumably, because presumably, um, Hammer's Vomus Nome, the creature is contemporary, so mid, mid 50s. But here, where there were active expeditions before the Second World War. There were. Yeah, okay. And, um, between 1934, and this is, this is going back to the German expeditions, because one of the things about the British mission to Tibet, which they were most frustrated about, was that they couldn't actually get into Plaza. Right? <sighs> they wouldn't let them in. Right. And on the other hand, they did let in the Schaefer expedition. Um, So between 1934 and 1938, and this is one of my favourite pieces of pseudoscientific expedition history. (laughs) Right. Because I have favourite pieces of pseudoscientific expedition history. Um, You you have Ernst Schaefer, um, Sturmbannfuhrer of the SS, Ernst Schaefer, Who's connected to Heinrich Himmler's organization, the Annenerbe? I can't, I'm hopeless at German. Annenerbe, whatever. Um, the heritage organization, the mystical heritage organization that Heinrich Hitler, Himmler had on the undertone on, on sort of like on the down low in the SS. And Schaefer wasn't really into that. Schaefer was an adventurer, right? right. He's a massive jerk. He, you know, he's a total Nazi, right? He's an SS officer. We got, we he's got an that. SS yeah. officer, a happy SS officer. He is sent to Tibet to find the roots of the Aryan race, the fifth root race of Madame Blavatsky, the yeah. the secret masters in Agati and Shambhala, or you know, try and find the root, Agati, Shambhala, all that stuff, right? So he's sent with a bunch of scientists and explorers. To Tibet, they get into Lhasa. Apparently, a lot of the Tibetans really like their good luck flags because they're waving good luck flags. Obviously, right. obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, That's and the they, Nazi symbol, listeners. Yeah, yeah, we, we yeah. Why don't we know? And, and um, and 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 partly it's they're waving good luck flags, but mainly it's because the Tibetans. It's not that they like the Nazis; it's that they'd rather have them there than the British. Uh, because now the British have been in India. Um, So they let these Nazis in. And so you've got Schaefer wandering around Tibet, looking for the, you know, the headquarters of the headquarters of Mystical World HQ and Master Kutumi and all that bollocks. And a bunch of guys with calipers measuring kids' heads. There's photos of it and everything. And trying to find some Aryan data. And while they're heading up mountains and climbing mountains, because actually what Schaefer himself is interested in 
It's just climbing mountains. Yes. Right, that's his thing. Right, he wants to kind of... And they climb some mountains in the Himalayas. And Schaefer is so, at some point, so pissed off with his men getting spooked by by strange sounds in the in the mountains of the wind and by stories of yetis that he goes he starts to go out in the middle of the night of fake yeti footprints in order to put the shits off his bed. He fakes yeti footprints to scare his own Nazi crew looking for the origins of the Aryan race. Yeah. It's yeah, that that's ridiculous. a good summary. Utterly ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. He what? Also in, Why? Why? Well, I mean, he's a bully. He's basically just a bully because Nazi, and he just sort of wants to just ow his men, you know. Because at the end, at the end, I believe that he did sort of come clean. But yeah, but but also, instantly, he's also looking. Even though he doesn't believe in the yeti, he thinks he's a bear, right? Because there is a bear up in the Himalayas. Yeah, right? yeah. he's fairly certain it's a bear in his memoirs and stuff. But he's also looking for the blue sheep, the fabled blue sheep, the Baral. Baral? Possibly. Of of the Himalayas, which at the time was a fabled mystical legendary animal, right. which is neither blue nor a sheep. Um, <laughs> was, it a very, was it a very cold sheep? Very cold. So, yeah, it was very cold. It's actually sort of, it's sort of a dark grey goat, goat adjacent oh, thing, um, which was eventually sort of brought into captivity and properly studied in 1973, according to Wikipedia. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, in, in this time, the blue sheep is actually like a fabled mystical animal. And so he wants to find a blue sheep so he can shoot one and bring it back <laughs> because Nazi. And I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure the British get to, get to throw the first stone there. No, no, fair <laughs> point. But yeah, yeah, he just wants to shoot a blue sheep and bring it back, but he doesn't manage it. Um, so, so there's all these sorts of things going on, and that's an interesting parallel with the British ex- British stroke American expedition in the Hammer Abominable Snowman. Isn't it? They're looking for mystical animal, and that whole thing where they basically find a Himalayan ape. Yes, yes, and it's even clearer in the script of the BBC version. Because they try to get, before they even go, they try to get their guys to explain, to describe the creature. Yeah. And he's like, oh, it's, it's this big. And he's obviously describing a Himalayan ape. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I think, in, obviously, I've only seen it once, but he says in the film, it's a Yeti. And they're all like, that's not a Yeti. No. Wallace is like, that, that, every zoo, every zoo anywhere in Europe has that's one. That's right. It's a, it's, it's a Langur. Yeah, yeah, I was try- yeah. I, I was trying to be generous and maybe think in 1957 and hadn't seen those, so it might be a yeti because that doesn't look like a yeti to me. That looks like a monkey. <laughs> it did look like yeah. a monkey, and the fact that he didn't even have, you know, it's not even an effect. They just got themselves a monkey. They just got got a monkey. Yeah. yeah, you know. But the but, yeti lets it out. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I was. I'm assuming the yeti doesn't kill either. It, no, it, no, no, it, it freeze. That's 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 the nature of that's the nature yeah. of Neil's Yeti. Yeah, is that is that they are peaceable creatures, and and they know full well that if it weren't for the Langur, it would be one of them in a cage. So they let it free. Yeah, which is kind of lovely. I, 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 it is. Actually. It is though. Sorry, but couldn't they just have left the Langur in the cage and then bug it off? But why? Because yeah, then, because then they might have stopped looking. 
but that's but that's tying more into the nature of what of what the Yeti are. The fact that they have reasoning power. Had they just opened the cage and eaten it, we're dealing with it. But the fact that they open the cage and allow it to escape I is further evidence of the fact that this is a this is a high oh, facility. Completely agree. But I just wonder if they were thinking, well, at least half the expedition thinks this is the Yeti. Perhaps we better not rip the cage open and and and, and, and you know rather demonstrably prove to exist. Well, you've also got to like take into account that the Yeti are alien. They're alien. They're not human intelligence, so they don't yeah. understand. In some sense, they understand, but they don't understand. They they're like there's yeah. creatures in the cage. We've got to let it out. I possibly, but, I, possibly, but they they talk later about um, the Yeti essentially uses your uses you against yourself. They use they McNee falls to his death because he's placed a position beyond his skill to and yeah. to, to, to climb. They use uh, Shelley Shelley dies of fear based on you know what he what he what he sees and I'll stop now. Yeah. It's quite convenient that it has a hard time. It's suggested that they do more, that they, you know, that they in some way uh, trigger, trigger that response. So I think there's some level when they, where they understand humans. I, I think, I think even by this point in the script, uh, the Yeti have reached the decision that probably no one is going home, mm. and that therefore they have nothing to lose by letting the the Langor out of the cage. Um, but yet, why, why? Either no one is going home, or no one is going home. Un- yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Because yeah, you don't get the impression that Rollison is hiding his knowledge of the Yeti. You get the impression that Rollison does not remember. Oh no, I, th- I th- no, I think he's been changed by the experience, and that he is yeah. happy to let it go. He, he remembers absolutely. Okay, all right. By yeah, the yeah, end, yeah, he's, yeah, he's in cahoots with the Lama. Right. Okay. I think what I, I, I what I do love about the film is one of my favourite things as I was watching it is the way that every one of the deaths is really the direct result of the vanity, stupidity, and incompetence. Absolutely. Yes. Of the expedition. Yeah, but then you know the same is true of Willy Wonka and Chocolate. Absolutely, yes. No, no, because we're, they're traps in Willy Wonka the Pot Chocolate Factory. They're deliberate well, they're traps. traps. Here also, they're traps here also. They are the yes, vanity and stupidity that's forcing them onwards. They can at any point return, uh, and so can the kids in Willy Wonka. And fundamentally, once they've got the dead, that's you know, Rollison's happy to leave it at that. They've got, they've got, they've answered the question. But there's no way that friend wants to leave with a, with a, with a dead one. That's wrong. Now, now there's, there's a whole argument coming that whatever happens, once they've got the dead one, there's no way they're leaving it. No. And even, if, even if not that expedition, yeah. then future yeah. expedition. They cannot be found because it's the, it's the, it's the end. Um, which, in a way, and it always comes back, not to Doctor Who, but what Doctor Who makes, You've essentially got uh, one of the most praised things uh, from John Pertwee's first season of Doctor Who, Malcolm Holden, Doctor Who, Delirium, um, where race memory was sort of out of Yes. It's less discussed is an entire civilization of three days uh, which is evident in a vulnerable snowman. Yeah. These are, these are pre human. These walks the earth. As the as the as the as we chose about now we don't know when and why it doesn't matter no, no. Uh, because but nevertheless that's something that 
to go and open But the but they, the change that's wrought upon MacNeve <clears throat> is very very similar to the change that's wrought on the um at the very beginning the first episode of the Silurians. Um, there's the there's the potholer who who is in the mental hospital. Um, and he he having seen them has started to connect with that race memory. Indeed, there's um, a, a genuinely chilling line that um, uh, Wolf Morris has You made me see. Yes. And that's yes. like, and I, I'm almost appointed until I can, like, I can deny it up until the end, to the nth degree, until there's no choice. And I, I should not have seen that. I yep. was not supposed to see that. And that's, that, I mean, the scene where, um, McNeil is possessed, or at least connect, that is connected with me, is, yep. is largely lost in the, in the, in the Hammer version to, to make room for what it, you know, yeah, it's been some but it's, um, I think without that scene, the, you made me, you made me see is, yeah. is the most chilling piece of dialogue. Going back to the civilization thing, um, the main difference between um, the Abominable Snowman and the Abominable Snowman and the John Pertwee Doctor Who's is that in the middle, Irish von Däniken happened. Mm, um, yes, yeah. That's, which, there's a, there's a, there's yeah a, I know a, it's not good, but it happens. Not and, good. And, no, and, and there's that, a focus on the... It changes the tone, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it does. Well, let's let's just let's just hang on with Doctor Who a moment because, of course, what what we haven't really discussed is the abominable snowman, Dean and, and that borrows wholesale from from the Neil from the Neil serial and from the Hammer film, wholesale to the extent that actually, although these are service robots controlled by the great intelligence in Doctor Who. We do actually get a little glimpse of a Neil-style Yeti, mm-hmm. who is a shy creature who avoids being caught to avoid. Oh yeah, and, mm-hmm. and therefore, therefore, Neil's Yeti is still in there. Yes, it's it almost uh, they have their cake and eat it. We'd say, well, these yeah. are great Yeti. Yeah. These these are these are rather cuddly looking, fun fun things, but are infinitely more child friendly than Neil's Yeti. Absolutely. Because they're, they're they're filling a function. Uh, yes, but yes, you have the same the same setup. Uh, you have with Morris obviously as well. But crucially, you also which I didn't realise I think until until I was watching for this podcast. You have in Doctor Who the Abomination, the Doctor returning uh, a stolen artifact. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The Yeah. Um, which is which proves his credentials uh, yeah. in a way that's then. His piece with the his intentions. Another connection I thought well, there's nothing to do with Doctor Who. When he made um, Yesterday's Enemy, uh, the um, the camp in Yesterday's Enemy, yes. the, sh- the shooting of it is very reminiscent of the enclosure of the of the, of the monastery. Monastery, yes. yeah. Yeah, there's um, for entirely different reasons, uh, and it, obviously there's no fighting or anything like that. But he's he's very very good at finding. They're both sets, I know, but he's very good at finding. Instant commenting. Sorry, 
they're both Bernard Robinsons. They're both, they are both Bernard Robinsons, yes, you're right, you're right. Yes, and I wondered how much that was a, that was a touchstone when they made it. I, I, think, I think Robinson was very, very careful about the way he constructed his sets and allowed his directors to prowl around them as much as necessary. Yeah. Um, so that he wasn't putting things in the way, mm. uh, which prevented that from happening. Was this all filmed at Bray? You know, because those there's, there's no um, a lot of the snowscapes yeah. built were filmed at Pinewood. That makes sense. Yes, they look because big. they just they just didn't yeah. the space. No, indeed. Um, but I think the the caves, certainly the monastery, but yeah. the cave and probably the tent were. We're all we're all done at um at Bray. Um, what's very interesting and and plays nicely into the narrative is the fact that when they're in the monastery, you can see the actor's breath in the air. Mm. The filming at Bray in January and February, um, and because because there's no space, they're having to open doors and open windows. To be able to get sound men in with booms and to be able to do all ah, the things, so Ray was bloody cold to film in, and although it works perfectly in the Abominable Snowman, um, in the early scenes of Dracula, which were filmed in December, November, December, um, when Christopher Lee and John Van Eisen are talking, you can see the breath coming from their mouths also. That's interesting. I really thought the situation. John Van Eisen, it's probably not so good for a Thinking where you know wow. where you wouldn't do something on location because it's infinitely more difficult to, to to film. Here you are in a studio set so cramped, you're having to find ways of sticking yeah. of sticking boom mics through windows, which is exactly the sort of problem you get. Right. And, and but also here's a, of the of the cameramen sort of wedged into chimney breasts to be able to get a decent. One of the particular problems with the Abominable Snowman, of course, is that Hammer had purchased um, a system, a widescreen system called Regal Scope. Right. Um, which they, having purchased it, redubbed Hammer Scope. So the Abominable Snowman is filmed in Hammer, which allows us to have these wonderful Himalayan vistas, which, of course, mm. are filmed in the, um, in the French Pyrenees. Right, uh, but it still looks fabulous. It looks great. Yes, it does. But, but the problem with that is then that you have to compose your shots very, very carefully. It looks far less like a television production because you've got to fill the screen, mm. and particularly in the monastery scenes, you literally do in Bray Studios have people, cameramen, wedged into corners to try and be able to get the camera in the right position. That's interesting. It's so the so, fact that it has such, too much, yeah. The fact that it has such attention to detail and depth of vision was actually a real pain to be able to produce. Um, but it worked extraordinarily well. Do you know that when guests came to cast this, um, for obvious reasons to say and to keep um, uh, to keep cushing, but was there any consideration given to, to even checking the availability of the other? I haven't, I haven't been able to find out what the general feeling is from guest and from Neil 
is that Stanley Baker had already, already moved on to greater things. Um, well, they probably wanted an, an American anyway, didn't they? Or, uh, I, I think I think the idea of an American of an American appeal to them um, for for reason of sales. Yeah, uh, but the fact that Stanley Baker was was bubbling under at that point would still have been appealing to them, I think. Um, one of the things that one of the things that Neil says in the in the commentary is that Stanley Baker was actually a much more unpleasant friend than Forrest Tucker. Interesting. Forrest Tucker plays it with a certain degree of sympathy and understanding towards the end. He's still monstrous, mm. but but yeah. not as monstrous as Stanley Baker had originally made the character, apparently. Is this before Triumph of Terror? Yes, yes. Because it because so is it fair to say that Tucker was cast in Triumph of Terror off the back of this? Almost certainly, or or he was or he was just casting around for work. There are a number of similarities, and also Sangster, at least partly wrote Triumph of Terror, didn't he? Yeah. So there's there's and I'm thinking of Snowbound. Um, Absolutely, sci-fi horror. Um, that just may have been, but it, that may have been, that may have been. Um, it's just they can be seen as a, as a they are very different. I'm not suggesting yes. this yeah. script is anywhere near medium. Well, is that idea that suddenly everyone is looking for Quatermassian property? Indeed, yeah. Um, and Sangster has, actually, and actually, no this. one's finding them. Hammer has a good go with um, X the unknown. X the unknown. X the unknown's it is fun. It is. It uh, is fun. It is but fun. <laughs> but but it but it's not. But it's not. No, it's not Neil. No, 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 fun. No, 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 it isn't. Um, even though it, even though it does feature Fraser Hines. Yes, yes. There's a small child. Yes, and it's also got a small child with a Scottish accent. I know. I genuinely <laughs> thought for years <laughs> Fraser Hines was Scottish because I, I, the only things I've really, seen him in watch Emmerdale was Doctor Who and. and the unknown, so why would he not? Like, why would he, he randomly Scottish? It's the only two things I've <laughs> When he turned up in Emmerdale when I was a kid in my teens, um, I was always horrified. I'd see my mum watching Emmerdale and he's there with, with an English accent, and it was wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> also, my, one of my favourite spots in uh, X the Unknown is Ian McNaughton, the producer. Anyway, we've we've done it. Yeah, no, uh, we covered it because it's it's essentially it's doing greater mass without greater mass all night. It is, yes, yeah. um, yes, and that, that's worthy of checking out just to go see. This but actually, it's, it's worth point because obviously I haven't done that podcast. Yeah, it's right. but it's but it's worth pointing out that that Dean Jagger makes a better go than Don Levy does. Absolutely. He's basically yeah. Tesco own brand quite a mass, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Really? yeah. He's but he's he's much he's much more likable. He's much yeah. less bullish. Yes, essentially it all comes down to Don Levy's quite a mass is a prick. And it's you don't I mean you actively don't like him and that shouldn't be it. Greater mass like in scenes like in Greater Mass too where you know like you ran that guy over. Uh, no, there's, 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 no, that's that's not okay. And yeah. like, particularly when you find out no one's dead at the end, well, one of them is because you ran the bastard over. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like, like at the end of 
crazy mass experiment. Marsh, what are you going to do now? I'm going to start again. You've learned nothing. Absolutely. For the last, for the last hour and a half, you've learned absolutely nothing. Like, tape practically broken at the end of Crazy Mass Experiment, as, as far as we could learn. So he's giving that, he's giving that heart-rending speech to the characters. You wouldn't do now that you can see the seriousness. Like, that's, that's how you've done it. But he'd like, you know, and he's like, he's taking on responsibility for something he can't. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, um, Don Levy doesn't. It's like, no. I'm going to start again. Not, uh, notwithstanding that, who's still funding it? That's <laughs> other questions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the, the, the showing, but, and yeah, Pete Tagger get, gets it right, uh, and makes an that would have made an here as a creator master figure. He's yeah. something, he's someone who, um, and I still bring back to I still don't know why. Presumably he was offered at this point, but um, did they ever think of um, Cushing? I, I, I suppose I suppose Nigel Neal would have been very against the idea of anyone using Quatermass apart from him. No, I think yeah. Well, I think he was whether he would have been or not, we'll never know. But so burned by the first experience of the BBC, just using it without him. Yeah. Never wanting again to let to let them know. Obviously, he made, well, he made his peace with Hammer out of the necessity of being now a freelance writer. And his, you know, his good money, his good money to be made. But yeah, it's not something that that comes around. Um, and Nigel Neal is sort of the sort of person who will who will burn bridges. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the, the, and, and actually, that ties that segues very nicely into what I want. It's apparent from Nigel Neal's work, from this and from so much of his work, going right back to the um the short story Mind You in Tomato Cane and other stories, the past for Nigel Neal is a dangerous, dangerous place for us. Yes. And it interferes not only with our future, but with our very existence as human beings, what it is to be a human being. We we are shown that actually were controlled by arthropods from Mars in Quatermass in the pit. Um, and we're shown in the abominable snowman or the creature that actually we're not at the top of the tree on this planet at all. We're not Homo sapiens, is it? What's the we are Homo vastans. Homo vastans, yes, that's it. And the destroyer. Yeah. Um, and that there is a, a higher creature out there. Both figuratively and literally, um, living at the top of the Himalaya. Apart from, um, was there always then the feeling that, um, apart from the was discussed forest, uh, forest angles within, because Stanley Baker has, has, has moved on and this gave an opportunity for them to have a, uh, a US cell that will, that will help with, 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 with you, with US distribution. Um, was Wolf Morris, uh, anyone that was known by, by Hammer anyway, because he, he he's the only one I've been pushing to retain his to retain his role. Well, there are three that there's there's also Arnold Marley, who's the Lama. Oh, oh, is he the Lama in the, in the, in the right? Okay. Um, which is considering it's a smaller cast. Yes. In the BBC, yeah. it, that's that's full scale porting across of talent. I think is that possibly because they're playing, should we say, ethnic roles? That and are yeah, it's meant to do one, and and probably it's something that that we have to address. Um, 
mm-hmm. is that is that the abominable snowman in many respects is a problematic film by today's standards uh, because we have European actors wearing yellow face mm-hmm. um, and we also have an additional problem given the difficulties in Tibet with China at the moment is yeah. that Val Guest in his commentary says that he was delighted to have been able to not have European actors, but basically to cull all of the waiters in the London Chinese restaurants and engage them all as Tibetan monks. Your heart sort of sinks when you hear those things. But I thought, I think that he thought at the time that he was being inventive and clever and using Asian actors rather than yellow face. Yellow face, but but then but then we can't get round the fact that we have Arnold Marley and Wolf Morris, both brilliant actors, um, both giving very very good performances, but both European. Mm-hmm. And Wolf Morris would repeat, uh, if not the role, then uh, the the, ethnic, the ethnicity. Yeah, uh, in, in, in Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, the yeah. Abominable Snowman. But then, I mean, Val Guest had four here, didn't he? He'd, he'd done um, Camp on Blood Island. Right? He would go on to Camp on Blood Island. Oh, I'd go on to it, sorry. I, I think he engages Wolf Morris again for that. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, we have lots, we have lots of European actors, being, including most pitifully um, Michael Ripper. And Michael Ripper is wonderful in almost everything he does, and it just is standing out in his career like a sore thumb, but that was the nature of the acting business at that point. One of the things that I did want to mention about the production, which which is very interesting, is that although, although Humphrey Searle provides the score, the musical director is John Hollingsworth, and Hollingsworth goes on just two years later to engage Frank Reisenstein uh, to do the score for The Mummy for Hammer. And there are various little curlicues that one had always assumed were Reisenstein's, but they're clearly not. They're clearly Hollingsworth's. Interesting. Because these little, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a musician, so I lack the technical term, but these little Eastern curlicues that crop up periodically are the same as the ones that appear in The Mummy. So they've clearly been added in by Hollingsworth in both cases to just right. to just tweak the eastern otherness of the setting. There's always slightly a, I think, an opportunity to do sort of quite haunting sounds when you have a, there's something uh, even within sort of an English context of a snowbound landscape. Yes, yes, of it, of it being different to it being. Of it, of it being Vistas created, even where there may not be vistas, yes, when there is, yes. when there is, when there is no. Just as I say, there are just these little three or four note moments mm. which don't lead anywhere. They just dress dress the soundscape, mm. I suppose. Um, yeah. Which, as soon as I heard it last night, I thought, my God, it's the mummy. Okay, right. Because because I know the mummy so extraordinarily well for obvious yeah. reasons. Yes. Um, but of course, it's it's not the mummy because it predates the mummy by two years. So it's Hollingsworth bringing his own interesting little pieces into play. 
we're possibly seeing lots of things uh, starting, if not for the first time, but very early, both yeah. with you say, yes. the music artists were, I, th I think some of the uh, camera work there aids um, yesterday's enemy, possibly. Yeah. How, how, the design, uh, the, the, the design work. Do we know how Cushing felt about um, this production? My understanding is that, that Cushing was, was happy to be doing another film for Hammer. The fact that it was, because it's a, it's a starring role, despite the fact on the titles and on the posters, his name comes below Forrest Tucker's, which really is very difficult to watch. Yes, it really um, but, but it But it's another starring film role, but particularly the fact that he had already appeared in the role on television. Mm means that he was happy to walk into it rather than see someone else play his role. Um, particularly as Hammer clearly had big plans for Cushing, the last thing they would have wanted to do would be to put his nose out of joint so easily. Watching it back now, um, are you ever transported back to your seven-year-old self, discovering it for the first time? Yes, in some respects I am. In some in some notable scenes, the the general atmosphere of the monastery, the terrifying strangeness of Arnold Marley still <laughs> works with me. Still works with me. He has that weird smile. Yes, that yeah. yes. isn't isn't it isn't malevolent, but it's not altogether friendly. No, it's it's different. It's different. It's, yeah. it's it's almost waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And and yes. I I think that's the problem because you know in those circumstances, whatever's going to happen isn't going to be good. Yes, um, there's expectation in that. Yeah. It, it's very straight. I was I was doing a little research on Marley, um, and he's German by birth. Along with lots and lots of theatre work in Germany and here, um, he was married to Sigmund Freud's niece, which is something that you know you 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 just imagine elderly actors of that period to live quiet lives, but one assumes that he had quite a hectic social life. His 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 wife was a major part of society at that time, and um. Yeah, mm. interesting. Actually, we haven't mentioned her uh, uh, much before. Just a quick word on Maureen Connell. She didn't do any other Hammer, did she? Maureen Connell didn't do any other Hammer. Um, she did a lot of work after that. Okay. Uh, she she was married to um to the film director John Gilliman. Oh, okay. Yep. Who did Death on the Nile amongst mm -hmm. other things, um, and therefore she she continued to work. Um, and I believe is still with us. Oh, is she? To the best of my knowledge, she is. John Gilliman died about five years ago, but I believe she is. Did the Tower of Inferno? Well, he did. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, De yeah. Death Denial is one of my favourites, of course. <laughs> for obvious. Oh, indeed, it is. Yes. <laughs> there's a there's a pattern here. There is. There is. How do you feel about Pyramids of Mars? <laughs> <laughs> Need you even ask? How do you feel about episodes nine and ten of the, of the Dalek Master Plan? 
Now you get um, a bit. They're, they're over long. <laughs> um, I, I should, by the way, point out that I may have a large large shelf of books about Atlantis, but I write books about how all of this stuff is rubbish. So I'm, oh, I'm delighted to hear that. I'm yes, I, I felt, I, you know, I'm talking to a proper Egyptologist. No, no, it's one of the things that I always say is there is space for aliens in ancient Egypt, but only in fiction. Yeah. Yes. Never, oh, yes. ever in fact. Yes. Um, and they're great fun in fiction. So mm. we have Sutek and Pyramids of Mars. We have, there are so many interesting... But as soon as it starts to move into reality, then it's just so the von Daniken stuff, it's just terrifying racist nonsense. It is terrifying racist nonsense. Absolutely. Yes. And you go from what well, it from von Daniken to Hancock. Yeah, I know. It's so I know. worse because he basically just uses the same evidence set and just hides it yeah. a bit. Yeah. Um Who's yeah. Hancock? Who's Hancock? Sorry, this is neither Graham Tony. Hancock. Not Graham. Graham Hancock. Not the good Hancock. <laughs> Not Tony. <laughs> good, 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 good is doing a lot of writing for how you how you make me <laughs> Not be very talented. Right, right, should, we, should we wrap up though? Yeah, okay. I think yeah, we'll wrap up. Um, John, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and and it was heard, a good point. Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to rank guests, but you're certainly you're 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 you're, you're, you're certainly one we hold in very very high esteem. Is there anything particular? I'm happy to cut this bit if we, if we need to. That you would like to to plug or to mention uh, of your work? Well, there are, there are lots of things I would like to plug. Um, various lectures coming up and so forth. If you find me on Twitter, then you will see all of the plugs for real. Um, one of the most important things I think regarding this podcast that's worth plugging is that I am the editor at large of Horrified magazine and that Jay Prowse, the editor, and I are currently working on a major Hammer retrospective, uh, which will be published as an ebook, either for Kindle or for print on demand. Right. Um, and it will be quite a chunky tome with lots of very interesting writers from comedy writers to dramatists to film academics and me. Um, so, so watch this space for more details about when that's going to, uh, probably later this year. Yes, right. uh, Horrified Magazine did an excellent uh, retrospective of Ghost Stories for Christmas last year, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. There, was a, yeah. there was a really good piece on the Ice House in that one. That I But I'm delighted to see that you're finishing on still on, <laughs> on a chilly phone. <laughs> on that note. On that note, John, thank you very much for joining. Thank Thanks you very so much, much for asking me. Thank you. Burcast is presented by John Deere and me, Howard David Ingham, and it's engineered by Emma Cooper. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.